This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to Sports Feed. I'm Archie Hodgson and along with Ben Sharp, I'll be your host for today. I'm delighted to be joined by our regular pundits, Luke Power, Robert Morrissey, Harry Tanner and Ben Fleming. Uh, without further ado, let's get into the show. We're going to start with football and Tuesday saw the return of the Champions League. Now, it was a brilliant start for all of the English sides in the competition with Liverpool, Manchester City and Manchester United all recording victories. I think the best place to start is, is Paris, really, which has proved to be a very happy hunting ground in recent seasons for, for Manchester United. Now, Luke, a lot of people um, didn't really give much chance to Man, uh, to Man United before this game. So were you surprised that they managed to grind out a victory? Yeah, well, it isn't the first time that um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's done it. So you have to say that he had the heritage in doing so. So it's not a major surprise. However, Man United have been blowing hot and cold this season. So there were absolutely no guarantees against a PSG side who were beginning to look more and more like Juventus have in recent years where they can have somebody injured and have a surefire expert in that position. They have so much quality all over the pitch. Um, but it was Man United who came out on top. Uh, a Martial own goal did set them back, but you had Bruno Fernandes with his penalty and then Marcus Rashford late on in the game securing it with his strike. So really impressive from Man United and you know puts them in a really strong position because that, of course, away in Paris is the most difficult fixture on paper that they're going to have in the group. So it already puts them in a prime position to progress. And Robert, Liverpool, as, as I mentioned, they also uh, recorded a victory in their opening game. They won 1-0 at Ajax. So this was the, the first game that they had to play since the injury to Virgil van Dijk. Um, and, and Klopp decided to put Fabinho uh, into the back four. How do you think he fared and, and how did you rate the, the Liverpool performance overall? I think Fabinho played really well coming in at centre-back and he's he's done it before. I, I believe um, BT gave him man of the match as well. He, he played solidly back there. I mean, it's always slightly concerning with them both not being the tallest centre-backs, him alongside Gomez. That's probably your biggest fear. But I think he played really well. There's one clearance he does. Uh, I think it's from Tadic when lobs Adrian and Fabinho does this overhead kick just before the ball crosses the line. I know Royley played really well. I thought... Robertson played really well and James Milner ran a kilometre more than anybody else on the pitch at the age of 33. It was a, it was kind of a, a ground out result. I can't say it was Liverpool's best performance ever. It was, you know, at times we lacked direction and it, it could kind of got a bit stale, but it was a comfortable win nonetheless. It took an own goal for us to, to get ahead. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was a good performance, but there's more to come. And I do think, I have hope actually after that performance that maybe Fabinho and Gomez could actually be all right at centre-back. Now, Ben, if we if we move towards Manchester City, they also got off to a winning start, um, overcoming Porto by three goals to one. I just want to talk about their summer signing, Ferran Torres. He was on target with the, the third goal, a really well-taken goal. Do you think he's going to be a crucial player for Guardiola this season? Yeah, I think... Um... I think they needed a bit more depth. Obviously, um, Leroy Sané leaving to um, to Bayern Munich in the in the in the summer. So I think he offers them a lot of flexibility. I think he can play on the left, on the right. There's also been um, comments in the week from from Riyad Mahrez, perhaps saying that he uh, he thinks his long term home is in uh, Paris. I assume with Paris Saint Germain. So if 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 there's any 
uh, validity to those rumours, um, then yeah, F um, Ferran Torres is going to become an even uh, even more crucial cog in that uh, in that attacking line. And Harry, Chelsea of the four English sides were the only ones not to to win their opening Champions League fixture. They drew nil nil against reigning Europa League champions Sevilla. But a lot of a lot has been made of Frank Lampard's size defensive issues in the early stages of the season. So the fact that they kept a clean sheet will that be a big positive for Lampard? No, you're spot on. Um, it was not the most inspiring performance, but uh, exactly, I think for Chelsea, the main takeaway from that game was the clean sheet. It was that defensive solidity that they've really lacked this season. I think a large part of that came from you know the additions of uh, Edouard Mendy and Thiago Silva at the heart of uh, the Chelsea defence. I thought they were both very impressive. Um, and Ben Chilwell and Reese James as well, I thought had cracking games as well. So hopefully for Frank Lampard now, he's got all the pieces in place that he uh, that he needs. He'll be able to build a bit more consistency. Look, if we look over his career as a Chelsea manager, there's been a lot of chopping and changing. There've been injuries. So now, you know, with a very strong, more confident goalkeeper, hopefully that will breed confidence throughout the rest of the team as well. Not having Kepa, Risa Balaga uh, behind them in the sticks, who obviously um, has made you know, mistake after mistake. I don't think we'll be seeing him again uh, anytime soon now that uh, Petr Cech's been called up into the Premier League squad too. But uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the clean sheet is, you know, there's Chelsea struggle going forward, I think, but Frank Lampard, I think that'll be something that will figure itself out, you know, with all the attacking quality they've got, whether he finds a solution or he just stumbles upon one, the goal will come. But uh, that's a, a big key step for Chelsea to keep that clean sheet. And after such a good start for, for all four English sides, do you think that they can all progress to the last 16? Absolutely. I think they've all got a very good chance, really. You know, the first game for uh, for all of them was against the, the you know, the other highest seed in their in their groups. And I think for, for such a strong start like that, look, English sides do have pedigree over the last few years in this competition. Obviously, Liverpool's performances have stood out the most. Um, and if you look at you know, other big teams as well, like Real Madrid, you know, they struggled. So uh, I think English teams will be uh, very confident of progressing to the next round. Absolutely. And Luke, if we look at some of the, the other results, the standout for me probably was uh, Bayern Munich overcoming Atletico Madrid by four goals to nil. Obviously, they were so impressive in last season's competition. Do you think they, they're they actually in a good position to defend their title? Oh, absolutely, because they've had a, a thunderous start to the season as well. And it just feels like they keep getting better and better and better. I mean, Kingsley Coman, what a player he has become, of course, with his brace against Atletico Madrid. He just seems when he's on the ball as if the, the world pauses and he, he's just able to run wherever he wants on the pitch with these mazy runs left and right. And it's, it's absolutely phenomenal to watch Bayern Munich's transitions from the back to the attack. It can be lightning quick and a couple of passes, they can end the game. Um, Robert Lewandowski, I think he's already in double figures in the Bundesliga this season. You know, he's had a phenomenal start as well. So more than anybody, I mean, yeah, they're, they're absolutely flying. Of course, uh, Barcelona uh, won 5-1, but that was against Ferenc Varos. So, we can't exactly judge whether they're going to be up there this season fully. Uh, so for me, yeah, Bayern Munich. I, th I think Liverpool and Man City are looking a tad weaker this season, especially with the injury of Van Dijk for Liverpool. So more than anybody, Bayern Munich are the favourites for me. And Ben, one side that we'd normally be uh, discussing as, as Champions League contenders is Real Madrid, but they were on the wrong hands of the shock result of of the, the opening round, losing 3-2 at home to, to Shakko Donetsk. And it wasn't even a full-strength uh, Donetsk team. I think they were seriously depleted as a result of coronavirus and, and injuries. Just how surprising was that result for you? 
Yeah, I was uh, I was going to mention the uh, the coronavirus uh, cases. Well, yeah, they were they were operating with severely um, weakened team, and um, yeah, I mean a, a fantastic performance of them. I mean, Varane and Militao, it's, uh, both both at centre back were being pulled all over the shop, and just so much so much space in that in that in that first half to, for Shakhtar Donetsk to get through them um, right in the middle. I mean, they came back a bit in the second half. Uh, Modric with that scream of Vinicius Junior off the bench, but. Uh, wasn't enough. I mean, they've started slow in a couple of their other um, of of their other campaigns, and they got a win in our Clasico at the weekend against Barcelona. So, so perhaps a blip. Um, but uh, yeah, they're going to have to make sure they uh, they get performances in the next couple of games because they've not got an easy group with uh, with Munchen Gladbach and Inter Milan. Now we're going to turn our attention back towards domestic action um, and and the Premier League. And this weekend saw surprise early pace setters Aston Villa and Everton both lose their unbeaten records. Let's start, Robert, with with Aston Villa. And now they lost 3-0 at home to newly promoted Leeds United. Leeds have been gaining a lot of plaudits for the the way in which they've started the season, especially the the style of play under manager um, Marcelo Bielsa. Um, and in particular, Mark, uh, sorry, Patrick Bamford has has been um, one of the standouts. He, of course, scored a, a hat trick against Aston Villa. And what did you make of his performance and and Lee's um, in, in general? Yeah, it's a completely different Patrick Bamford to who we saw the first time in the Premier League. You know, he's much more of a... Obviously, he's got a hat-trick in this game, but he's more than that. He you know his runs off the ball can very much take defenders with him. And he's, in general, he's playing really well up front, you know, especially with Rodrigo coming in and he can... He should have scored in this game as well earlier on before Bamford does. And it's going well. Like you said, they're playing really well. It's kind of like Sheffield United last season. They've come up, they've got their style of play, a style they kind of perfected last season in the Championship, as Sheffield did the season before. Then they've come up and they're here to play and it's working for them. I think that's the concerning thing for Villa, obviously. They were, they'd were they won all the games up until now and we thought that maybe they can come on, maybe they can do a, a Leicester or something. But no, they were thoroughly outclassed. Leeds were just a better team and I think you'll probably now see Villa sink off slightly more. Uh, and Leeds, I reckon, you know, for them, it should be a solid mid-table finish. And Harry, the, the other team that started the season unbeaten, Everton, they were 2-0 losers at, at St Mary's at the weekend. Now, I think the way in which they started the season had led a lot of pundits to to believe that, that they would be genuine uh, top four contenders this season. But is that game against Southampton the, the type of game you really need to be winning if you are going to to be finishing at that end of the table? Yeah, absolutely. There's those games away from home. You know, when you're struggling, when you're missing a few players, you know, Richarlison wasn't playing. I think you know, Hamez passed a late fitness test, really, and I don't think he was quite... Uh, you know, quite at his quite at his best, but I think those are the kind of performances when you know things might be starting to go against you, when you've really got to step up. You know, the cliche is that you know the good teams find a way to win even when they're not playing very well. Um, and you know, I think Everton probably learned a lesson against Southampton, who are you know let's face it are, are actually a very well coached team. I think it's coming up to a year ago now that they lost nine uh, nil against Leicester. So I think you know it's important not just to focus on Everton, but to look at them as well and how far they've come over the uh, over the last twelve months. Um, you know, for a team that let's face it, apart from Danny Ings, don't have a huge amount of quality. They're extremely well coached by Ralph Hassan, who's on. Um, and so, you know, for Everton, going back to them, um, and, you know, I don't think they should be too disappointed from that game. But, yeah, they were going to have to lose at some point. Um, and obviously the Luca Dean uh, red card probably didn't help matters. Um, but overall, I think look, they'll move on to the next game. Ancelotti's an experienced coach. Um, and I'm sure they'll, you know, they'll look to build momentum again uh, next week. 
At the weekend, Liverpool did get back on, on track. They were two on winners over Sheffield United. It, it wasn't maybe the, the classic um, attacking Liverpool performance that we've become accustomed to in, in the last few years under Jurgen Klopp, but it, it was a really vital three points, wasn't it, Luke? Oh, absolutely. And it's a shame it cost £15 to see. Uh, <laughs> Jota has made such an impact. And I think we've seen the way that it's actually shaped Klopp's style because instead of going for our typical 4-3-3, we actually went for a 4-2-3-1 just to fit him in because there's no room for Jota on the bench. He is phenomenal. Um, and, and he grabbed a header near the end of the game to seal the victory. But yeah, I mean, we were in control against Sheffield United. It's a shame for them. They've had a really rocky start to the season. Um, and it did look like we were going to get off on the wrong foot. Of course, it was a, a VAR controversy with Fabinho. Very, very debatable, isn't it? As a Liverpool fan, I'll probably be slightly biased and say that it shouldn't have been a penalty. But I think week on week, we're seeing several decisions now where VAR is having an impact on the game and you don't feel like you can celebrate. But, I mean, for Merseyside overall, how brilliant that Everton and Liverpool are doing so well on the table. Um, I'd prefer Everton to be a bit lower down, of course. But yeah, it's a very promising start from Liverpool. And I, I think we'll cope fine. As Rob said before, Fabinho has stepped in and being an absolute rock in centre-back. Still a few questions about Gomez. I feel like he, he does need that solid partner. I think sometimes he can stray out of position a bit. And especially with Arnold, he goes on these roaming runs and disappears off your television screen. And you're thinking, when we're against a counter-attack, we could do with that extra solidity, but Fabinho really brings it, a very disciplined player. And Ben, if we if we stay on the, the topic of top four challenges, there was a, a crucial game at the Emirates on Sunday evening between Arsenal and Leicester. And it was the visitors that prevailed. A Jamie Vardy strike 10 minutes from time, handing Brendan Rodgers' side a 1-0 victory. Now, last season, they they looked to be in, in a really solid position um, going into the, the, the lockdown. And then the, the wheels just fell off after the, the return. Do you think this year, after a really impressive start to the season, that they can finish in the top four this year? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, a very hot and cold start. I mean, looking at their results now, I mean, they, they put they put five past City, obviously beat Arsenal, as you mentioned, but they've also had in there a 3-0 thumping at home against West Ham. So uh, I think I think, I think think they're still looking to find their group. Obviously, Bardi coming back from an injury, they've still got plenty of um, injuries at the back and in centre midfield. But I think um, I think... They're forming a solid team. I think um, Chengus Under, who came off the bench and got got the assist, I think he looks like a solid signing, giving a bit more strength out in those in those wide areas. It'll just be a case of um, you know assembling their squad back together again. And yeah, as you said, seeing seeing if they can make a push from an Arsenal point of view, I'm I'm concerned because they look really devoid of creativity. Um, they've got seemingly all the pieces up front in Pepe, Aubameyang, and and Lacazette, but they're really struggling to. Uh, to create many chances. So I think um, I, I think it could be a long season for them if they don't turn it around soon. And Robert, one team that Ben mentioned there, West Ham, they were really plagued by off-the-field issues before the season. There was a lot of criticism aimed at the, the club's ownership. But they've really um, 
been a, a bit of a surprise package this year. Um, they obviously had that impressive 3-0 victory over Leicester earlier on in the season. Last last weekend, they had a really impressive comeback draw against um, against Tottenham. And then, of course, this weekend, um, they they drew 1-1 at, at home to Manchester City. Now, West, West Ham is a, a club that was obviously in, injected a lot of cash in recent seasons, um, but have, have probably failed to to meet their, their supporters' expectations. Just how high should they be aiming this season? Yeah, it's really difficult, especially given this year and the current kind of climate in the Premier League, you know, how close everything is. But I, I think they should really be aiming. They, should, they are should be solid top 10, you know, top half of the table, definitely. And kind of in that bracket with Wolves, you know, and that kind of level where they should be trying to push to get into a European place of some kind, maybe go on a on a League Cup run or an FA Cup run and kind of that area. Apparently, David Moyes spent pre-season looking at like kind of the Red Bull franchises and how they do things to try and get ideas. And they, like you said, they've injected a lot of money. Yet it's actually Mikel Antonio who's been the star player so far. You know, it's not Haller, it's not all these people that they have brought in for a lot of money. It's actually the ones they've had for a while who they've managed to nurture. Yeah, and um, really this this weekend, the big game that everyone was looking forward to it was Manchester United against Chelsea. But Harry, it was a bit of a, a damp squib in the end, wasn't it? Um, that is, yeah, spot on again. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to talk about two nil-nil draws this week, I have to say, um, a real pleasure. Um, yes, a real damp squib just nothing to it really in that game um a boring you know as a viewing experience Chelsea offered very little going forward um I think the real star was Edward Mendy again I mentioned him earlier three you know top saves um and you know they're slightly enhanced by uh you know as a Chelsea fan being starved of any uh, good goalkeeping for the last two years but um absolutely just a real damp squib as you say you know everything building up to it was you know, big clash, pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, pressure on Frank Lampard. And I think they both sat there and went, we can't afford to lose this game, either of us. And I think they both would probably have settled with that nil-nil draw in the end. It's a shame, you know, for Manchester United, I thought they you know, they probably would have come out, could have impressed, you know, having impressed in Paris, maybe they would have wanted to build some momentum. But again, both both managers were very happy and content just to sit back um, and just let, let the 90 minutes pass with, uh, with very little happening. The big talking point, obviously, was... Uh, you know, Harry Maguire getting in on the action again looked like a bit of a sleeper, you know, a sleeper hold. Really, probably would have been at home with uh, Khabib and Gaethje uh, <laughs> that uh, that move on uh, as Pilaqueta, but VAR didn't look at it. Um, and as we said last week, we're talking about VAR uh, all the time now, and I think that's a probably the biggest talking point from that game. Really, we can't have you just talking about nil nils this week. So, um, we yeah, we'll we'll move on to to Fulham and their sorry form continued. They lost 2-1 at home to to Crystal Palace. Do you see any way um, for them to to turn their season around? Being brutally honest, I don't really. Um, yeah, Fulham just look just without any hope, really. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, got a, they got a goal very late on there to, to make it look slightly more respectable against Crystal Palace, but I think they, they struggle going forward. They struggle in defence. You know, I, I can't really pick any positives. I think Ruben Loftus-Cheek, you know, from Chelsea, I think adds a slight, slight more dynamism to the midfield. There's slight, slight something more there, but uh, I, I fully expect for them to uh, to go down. Yeah, I think it's just, I think it's one point so far that they've got this season, haven't they? 
uh, yeah, it, it looks like their work is really cut out. It'll, it'll be interesting to to see where their first win comes um, because it, it doesn't seem forthcoming anytime soon. Now, Luke, uh, for, I was just wondering if for, for a minute, could we spare a thought for VVV Venlo, who lost 13-0 in their Eredivisie match against Ajax at the weekend. Have you ever heard of a, a scoreline like that? Well, not in the Eredivisie, because that, that broke the record. Absolutely incredible away from home. 45 shots for Ajax. I don't think I've ever uh, heard of a game like that before. And Lucina Traore filling in. Uh, Mohamed Kudus, of course, was injured in midweek against Liverpool. And who steps up to deliver a five-goal performance? One better than Mikael Antonio, um, Lucina Traore. The only caveat is most of them were tappings. So I do think Venlo come away... Um, very, very scathed and their, their reputation, of course, has been damaged. But a lot of these goals, they, they were deflected. The keeper did actually make a number of really good saves. And then, unfortunately, Huntelaar would pop up at the far post and mop up or something like that. So it is a bit of a shame. But what a promise for midweek when Ajax play Atalanta, who, of course, beat Michelin 4-0, because that is looking like it's going to be an absolute goal fest. Um yeah, I mean, incredible. And it puts Ajax on top of the uh, Dutch league as well. Yeah, that, that's certainly a, a game to look out for, isn't it? Ajax, Atalanta. So I think Atalanta were the, the top scorers by some margin in, in the Serie A uh, last season. But if we just talk about Ajax for, for a moment, obviously a, a couple of seasons ago, they had that incredible run in, in the Champions League, didn't they, Luke? When they, they reached this, the semi-finals, were bitterly unlucky not to, to go on to the, the final. But they sold the the vast majority of the key players from that run um, in, in the, the subsequent transfer windows, but they just have such an incredible knack of, of bringing through academy players, don't they? Yeah, so you think of Delic, Ziyech, De Jong, all of them lost. In centre-back, we now got Scherz, who's been touted as the next big defensive thing. I wasn't particularly impressed when he played against Liverpool, but I thought he did okay, and of course, it's not an easy game to play against our formidable, uh, Liverpool's formidable front three. But what, what I really like with Ajax is, as much as they regenerate, they do have their, their several stalwarts who are their older, experienced players, Daly Blind, Duzan Tadic, Huntelaar, who were just there probably to bring those younger players under their wing, show them the ropes uh, every new season when they have these young players. And I think Onana as well in net. Is, is really proving to be something really exciting prospect and I think could end up at a, a top club. He's only 24 years old, I think. So he's got a lot of time ahead of him as a goalkeeper. And yeah, I think this Ajax team, look, I, I think it's going to be hard to repeat this semi-final run. That Maybe not an anomaly, but that is a really, really good run. Do I think, though, that they can be a force in Europe? Absolutely. We, we could be looking at quarterfinals, definitely if they can hang on to some of their key players. Thank you very much to all of you for your thoughts. We're now going to move on to local football and we'll start with Newcastle. Now, Harry, they salvaged a one-all draw at home to Wolves at the weekend with a late Jacob Murphy free kick. Do you think that was a fairly decent result against what is undeniably a, a very good Wolves side? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Wolves, you know, after you know, the last number of years and th this season as well, you know, they started very strongly. Um, you know, they're 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 going to be contenders for Europa League football. You know, it seems to be for the next for the next few years. So for Newcastle, you know, a point there, 
I think they'll take it. I think they'll be disappointed with the performance, though. I mean, it was, you know, another game there where there was very little inspiration, not particularly much being offered going forward. I think they had five shots all game or something, which is pretty dire. Um, I think the biggest takeaway from that game, I watched uh, Jacob Murphy's uh, interview after the game. Um, that was that was the biggest talking point for me, where he said he'd done some research into uh, into the goalkeeper uh, at Wolves, um, and he said. Um, and that he'd play with Rui Patricio. He said he planned that um, if he play if he placed it into the bottom right corner underneath the wall, he said he, he guaranteed that it would go in. And lo and behold, uh, that is what happened. Uh, so that was some entertainment provided, I think. But otherwise, you know, it was a, a real Steve Bruceian performance, really. Not much going forward. Um, you know, I think they're, they're going to need to find ways of scoring a few more goals, I think, to uh, to improve their league position this season, though. And talking of, of their league position, I know it is obviously early days, but they are already seven points clear of the relegation zone. So all in all, has it has it been a reasonable start for Steve Reese's side? Absolutely. They'll, they'll take that um, any day. I think, you know, the further away they, further away they are from the, uh, the relegation zone at this stage will certainly, uh, you know, settle a few nerves. Um, absolutely, you know, they're, they're not, they're not going to be a team that's going to uh, be challenging for the top four. Um, but I think, you know, perhaps top 10 would be, I think, a fantastic season for uh, Newcastle. You know, they have spent quite a bit of money over the years um, on, uh, you know, Callum Wilson's just come in. So I think they'd hope with those kind of signings that maybe, you know, Sam Maxima and the talent they, they could have going forward if they can unleash them properly, um, maybe a top 10 finish is somewhere they'll aim for. But absolutely, for the moment, you know, above the relegation zone, I don't think they'll be complaining too much. Now, Luke, Sunderland had a mixed week. They they started it off with a 1-0 victory over Crewe on Tuesday night, but then lost 3-1 at home to, to Portsmouth um, on Saturday. That result leaves them sixth after the opening seven games, but they do have one game in hand on the, the teams above them in League One. Overall, do you think the do you think Sunderland fans will be happy with that start to the season or would they rather be in the top two? Yeah, I mean, it's such early doors. That was their first loss of the season. So I don't think they'll be too disencouraged. And Portsmouth themselves are a good team. I guess the only problem is it was a pretty key tie because Portsmouth have overtaken them in the league. So it's not the sort of game you want to be losing at all. But I think what we see in League One this year, for maybe the first time in a few years, is just several big, big clubs who will all feel entitled to promotion. Hull uh, coming down last season when they were in, in the top half earlier on in the season, they felt like they could be pushing for the playoffs. Of course, Ipswich are still lingering. They'll be hoping to uh, amend for what happened last season. Charlton still knocking around there. So I, I think um, it'll be a difficult season for Sunderland because they're no longer the big, big boys by far. There are several clubs who will all be challenging. Um, but Bailey Wright, I just want to mention him because I, I saw him quite a few times at Preston North End and he has really slotted in nicely to the Sunderland back line. They've got uh, the best defence in the league at the moment. They've only conceded four goals and I think he is mostly responsible for that because he brings such an air of authority and he was always the loudest guy in the ground. No matter how, how loud the fans cheered, you would be able to hear Bailey Wright's voice. So I think the level of discipline and commitment and blood and guts that he will bring to that Sunderland team will pay dividends for them. Yeah, hopefully he can help lead the, the side to promotion this season because those Sunderland fans have just been suffering for so long, haven't they? But as you said, they will have their work cut out because there are a lot of 
a lot of sleeping giants, you you would say in in League One this season. But we will we will keep tabs on both Newcastle and Sunderland throughout the the season. Now, thank you both for your thoughts. We're going to move on to rugby league now, and uh, our our expert um, Robert Morrissey. I know you were anticipating the the grand final um, with, with a lot of excitement, um, and it really did deliver, didn't it? What did you make of the game? Yeah, I don't know how much of an expert I am anymore because I've got another one. I've got another prediction wrong. It was actually it was Melbourne who won it, not Penrith. And it was a yeah, it was a fascinating game. It's everything you wanted in a final. It was amazing. It ended up being twenty six to twenty to Melbourne, but that doesn't tell you the game at all. What first happened was this really controversial penalty try given to given to Melbourne. They've gone on the wing, they've gone down to ground, and Tyron Mays basically stuck his boot out and kicked the ball out of the winger's hand, and it was given as a penalty try. Now, it's definitely a penalty. Whether it's a penalty try or not, I'd probably disagree, but they end up then going under the post and scoring six. And then after this, you see Penrith kind of more get into the game, and there's a period of about 20 minutes where Penrith just had this onslaught on the Melbourne defence, and it really should end in a try. And they get one disallowed. It's, again, similar on the wing. It's what I would say, some brilliant play, brilliant dummy lines, and then they go in on the wing. But it's ruled as obstruction, and then it's given as a penalty. Melbourne then go further up the field, uh, get a penalty themselves, and convert it and go up eight points. And this really kind of began a bit of a spiral for Penrith. It, It wasn't too great. They couldn't really get a grip on the game. And a lot of that has to do with, I think, the inexperience of Mel of um, Penrith compared to the real experience in the Melbourne team. Melbourne had Cameron Smith. He's won it three times already. He made his 430th NRL appearance that night and became the all-time leading scorer in grand finals. It's incredible. He's an amazing player. And he really knew how to control this game. Whereas on the other side of the ball, the two halfbacks for Penrith uh, in Cleary and Tiu, they were 22 and 23. And I think you really saw that because Penrith gave away needless penalties, which then let Melbourne get a 26-point lead, you know, by just before half-time. There's one where Cleary, one try scored by Vinivolu, who Cleary goes for a magical pass, you know, if it comes off, it's sensational, but it just gets intercepted and Vinivolu goes 60 metres and scores. And you think that's game done. Just before half-time, you think it's over. Melbourne have really shown their class, their experience. But no, Penrith fought back, managed to score just before the break. And it set up this fascinating second half where Penrith really went for it. And it was the last 10 minutes where so much more seemed to happen. Melbourne ended the game with 11 players. They had two players sent off in the last 10 minutes. And, you know, Penrith scored something like, 30 seconds before the end of the game and then got the ball back and sadly didn't manage to make it. But yeah, it was this incredible game which really youth against experience and experience just about came out on top. It it was such an exciting game, wasn't it? And it it just, it makes you glad that there were actually supporters in in the stadium to see it. Nearly 40,000 crammed into the ANZ stadium in in Sydney. And it just, it makes you realise obviously in, in the UK we've become used now to to live sport uh, behind closed doors. It, it just it, it reminds you of how good it is to have supporters in the ground. Oh, uh, 100%. You could feel it just watching the TV that there was something different about it and the way the players were acting, the reactions to, to everything going on, you know, because it was such a controversial game. 
and you could really feel that with the crowd being out there. And like you said, we've we've gotten used to not having them there. You kind of forget how amazing fans are in stadiums and how it can really change a game. And I think that's what kind of gave Penrith this second lease of life. It was the crowd dragging them on a lot. And yeah, no, it definitely made a massive impact on there. And hopefully, you know, with Australia doing quite well with the COVID situation, we can just get more and more fans in, especially going into the state of origin games. If they can get crowds in there, which I think they're planning on doing, that'll just make it so much better. Yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed for that. Now we're going to switch codes to Union and the Women's Six Nations and England. They clinched the the title this weekend despite not actually playing after France failed to, to beat Scotland. Now, this is England's third title in, in four years. They have really become so dominant in this competition, haven't they? Yeah, they are by far and the best, the best team in it. You know, 2014, they won the World Cup. Then I think in the last six years, they've won four Six Nations. They are well and truly dominant. You know, they've still got players like Emily Scarrett still playing. She's all-time England scorer. She's only 30. You know, they've got this really good crop of players that are really just taking the, all the other Six Nations teams apart. they've they, This season alone, in the four games they played in the Six Nations, they nilled both Scotland and Italy. You know, they, they are absolutely incredible. And a lot of this has to be boiled down to the recent implication of the Premier 15s, which is the new kind of female... Uh, women's uh, league in England is completely professional. There's been a lot of stress put on using it to upgrade facilities to really play pay the women the right amount so they can play fully professionally. And that's coming through now, especially just the way they can play, the way they can train, and how compared to the other home nations, how much better prepared they are in these games. Uh, as I said, England in in the final um, round of fixtures, they they already know that they've won the tournament. But it's a very different picture in the men's competition, with Ireland, France, and England all uh, vying for for the title this weekend. Ireland were the um, they they were the the team that have been able to put themselves into the driving seat by thrashing Italy fifty points to seventeen at the weekend. Do you see them? clinching the title this weekend, they obviously have to go to, to Paris. Uh, or do you see one of the, the other two winning? It, it depends because they have to, you know, to guarantee the next week winning it, they have to go and get a bonus point away in Paris. And that is an incredibly difficult thing to do, especially how well France have played, you know, in the, when they played Wales. But Ireland are very good. They, but it's they played Italy. You know, Italy haven't won a Six Nations game in 25 matches. They're not the best barometer to see how where a team's at, but they did play well. And they'd debutants Keenan and Connors had great games. Keenan scored two tries, and Connors uh, gets gets over the ball and wins the penalty for the first try that then uh, Keenan goes in to score. And they, they look, they did play well. They controlled the game really well. They used the pack. Stander had a had a, a blinder as well. He played really really well. But I'm I think there's a slight worry for Ireland in the sense that they're still quite reliant on Johnny Sexton. Mm. Andy Farrell made good selections in bringing Keenan and Connors in and giving them debutants. But when you play Italy, I think that's really a game where you should be bringing in and trying to blood in another real fly half because he's he's only getting older. And we're also kind of seeing him drop off a bit. Again, he got a pass intercepted in this game, which led to an Italy score. It's he's dropping off a bit, 
and I think they need to address that before it's too late. But when it when we boil it down to just this Six Nations, Ireland could win it, but they're going to have a really really tough test in Paris. Yeah, as you said, it, it's no no mean feat to to go to Paris and, and win, let alone uh, get get the bonus point. Obviously, England have already gone to to Paris and, and come away empty handed. And as you, you also said, France um, were really impressive uh, this weekend as, as they overcame Wales 38-21 in their kind of preparation match for for the the Six Nations. Just how impressive have you been by by France this year? That they've they've been very resurgent. They after the World Cup, they they had a big changing of the guard. They've now favoured a lot of the the younger players who who have won under twenty World Cups in in, in recent years, and in particular the the scrum half uh, fly half partnership of of uh, Antoine Dupont and and Roman Inter, uh, Intermac have been very impressive. Yeah, this France team is scarily good. Uh, like you said, Dupont Dupont played amazing uh, as well in this game. He just uh, some of the, his box kicking recently has been incredible, and they play. It sounds really weird. They play really French rugby. Yeah. They're a bit mental. They just they, but then when they spy a gap, they can exploit it like nobody else can. They really get in there. And now with Sean Edwards and th- that kind of defensive structure in the French game, they're a, quite a dangerous pro- proposition. And as you said, they have so many players in this team who won that uh, under twenties championship. And it's, I think, they're a really good proposition. They're really good now, but also they're only getting better. If you think about the next World Cup in in 2023, you wouldn't, you know, you could very much make a case that they're going to do some things in that competition. They're really looking up. But also, Wales should be very disappointed in this result. I mean, the Welsh teams that we've come to see recently, the teams that did well in the last World Cup, it was based on a structure of defence this and set piece games and they just couldn't get that going you look at most of the tries uh, that France scored and it's through the middle it's through the middle of the park with dog legs occurring centers shooting up and like I said France can just exploit that really well so France played really really well but Wales you know I, I'd be very disappointed if I was a Welsh fan but saying that they um Liam Williams didn't play and he's quite integral especially under the high ball which would have kind of nullified DuPont's kicking game uh, but yeah, no, France were France were really were sensational. As you said, Wales will be bitterly disappointed um, after that result, but they've got the chance to make amends this weekend when they host Scotland. Now, Scotland, they they were also in action last weekend on Friday night. They defeated Georgia in, in emphatic fashion uh, at Murrayfield. Uh, I think in this game, it's fair to say Scotland showed a, a side of the game that's perhaps been lacking in in recent years. That the pack was really dominant against what is. A, a huge Georgian Georgian pack. Uh, there were also uh, de- debuts for the the likes of Oli Kebel and uh, and winger uh, Duhan van der Merwe. Yeah, that's a, a very Scottish sounding name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but do, do you think their performance um, bodes well for for the the matchup against Wales this weekend? Definitely, because like you said, that they could play such good forward rugby in their pack against Georgia, who are notoriously good for being just massive (laughs) and just having a really heavy and really strong pack. And the fact that Scotland could not only compete on that, but, you know, kind of take the game by that route is really good. They kind of had to do it 
Um, they Because they have to improve that side of the game, and this is the best test you can do. But also, they had no uh, Hogg or Russell playing in this game, as they were both playing for playing for their clubs. So when you think when they've got them back, who they should do, I think they're in the squads for the, for the Wales game. It's going to be really yeah, interesting. Russell, um, he came off the the bench against. Oh yeah. In, in the second half, um, and and that was something else I wanted to to talk about. Just how important is it uh, for Scotland to to have their kind of talisman back in the team after the 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 fallout with Gregor Townsend? Yeah, no, he's. I mean, like we when we were saying last week when he's uh, with the Racing game, he's just brilliant. He is just a great a great fly half, and they need that. Hastings played well in the first half. He yeah. he did, and he's a solid kind of one of those solid system fly halves. But Finn Russell just has magic. I swear he's he's got some powers going on. He can just spot things that nobody else can see, and then ex, you know uh, do it amazingly. So it is brilliant for them that he's there. And if he starts against Wales, if Hogg can play as well, and they can kind of use the forwards as they did against Georgia. Mm. That will be a really interesting game against Wales. But Wales, they aren't as bad as they came across against France. They are still a decent team. So I'd imagine it would be probably not a cagey affair, but it would be a close game. One team that was unable to to fulfil their preparations for, for the Six Nations was England after their um, scheduled game against the Barbarians was, was called off following a group of 12 Barbarians players breaking COVID rules. Now, th- this group of players, it includes the likes of Chris Robshaw, Sean Maitland. You're, you're talking about very experienced um, uh, professionals. So should these players really have, have um, known better? Yeah, they should have. You've got an ex-England captain there, and he's really been made kind of the face of this scandal. It's all been about Chris Robshaw, especially because this was going to be his last game in England until he went to go with play for the San Diego Legion in the MLR in America. But it's really difficult for them because if we think about what is the Barbarians rugby, it's a laugh, it's a joke, it's a going out and partying and then playing against a, an amazing international team on the weekend. So obviously they wanted to try and capture that as much as they could, but they can't. Then they should have known they couldn't. It's you know they went out um, just the twelve of them in the bubble, but that was still breaking the internal rules that the RFU had set, as well as government rule of six laws as well. So yeah, they should have definitely known better. But I have somewhat of a sympathy for them because that that's what the barbarians is meant to be all about. And how much of an impact do you think it will have on on England? The fact that they weren't able to 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 play this warm up match, which means that they'll obviously go into their Six Nations um, game against Italy without any uh, competitive action for for such an extended period of time. I know that I've kind of been slightly mean to Italy already, but I will be again because it's against Italy, so I don't think they'll be that worried. You know, the, Ireland did it. They they didn't have any preparation before they went to play Italy and they destroyed them. I think if it was any other team, you'd be more concerned. But especially given how this Italy team's playing and the strength in the English side, I don't think it should be too much of an issue. I think they should use this more as to get their heads down and settled, ready for you know the um, autumn internationals uh, later on. So I don't think it'll be. I don't think it'll impact them that that greatly. But what they do need is they do need a bonus point. So it'd be better if they had had that game so they can get the system more in place. But I don't think it'll be that big of an issue. 
And as you mentioned, Stuart Hogg wasn't playing for Scotland on, on Friday night against Georgia because he was in action this weekend for ex Chiefs in, in the Premiership final against against Wasps. And in what was a really um, kind of well, probably a, a closer contest than many had anticipated, Exeter did manage to get the victory nineteen thirteen with a, a Henry Slade try proving crucial. Just how impressive have have Exeter been this season? Obviously, now they they secured this historic double. Yeah, obviously, I, I waxed lyrical about them last week, and I will again. They were they're really good, and it was to be fair, it was quite a strange performance by Exeter because Wasps really came and really kind of took the beginning of the game uh, by the scruff of the neck. Joe Launch, where he had a really good game, he um, kind of nullified a, a lot of the line-out threat, and Exeter couldn't really even get their pack going at the beginning, but it didn't phase them, and they actually kind of changed the way they played. They they took the points when they were on offer, which they don't normally do. They're quite famous this season for kicking to the corner and trying to get the try, but actually they took the penalty points. And I think this kind of how Wasps played, it ended up in, I've got it written down here, as a very English game. Mm. It was a lot of kicking, it was a lot of penalties, and it was a really quite cagey final. But Exeter, with kind of the winning mentality they have at the moment, it, that, that was enough, you know. And, a, a, you know, a, a good break, you know, by Henry Slade, and that's, you know, that's the game. But it really is, they are really good. And the way that they managed to change this game, that was the most impressive thing for me, was the fact that their system wasn't working, like, especially because their system worked perfectly against Racing the week before. So you, you'd think they're going to come in here thinking, oh, we can do the same thing. You know, Wasps, they're very much beatable, you know, so they'll go in and do that. But then Wasps, you know, kind of nullified the traditional system a lot and they changed their game. And I thought that was the most impressive thing about Exeter. And I know we, we talked a lot last week about Rob Baxter and just how impressive um, that his reign at Exeter has been. But do you, do you think surely now he has to be a, a future England coach? If he wants to, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's always a tough gig going for England, you know. I'm, yeah. if, if I'm him, I don't know if there's the, kind of the necessity to do it. It depends what his ambition is, because he definitely could be. And you've got to think Eddie Jones, he'll do, do the next World Cup, uh, unless something catastrophically goes wrong within that time. And then even say everything goes well and we even win the next World Cup, he will leave. So there definitely needs to be the thinking of who we're going to have next. And Baxter, to probably, he probably is a good option. Because, um, I mean, who else really is there? I think at the moment he's probably the best the best English coach, definitely. And it'll be good to go back to, to you know, to having, having an English coach at the helm of England. Thank you very much, Robert. I'm now going to pass back over to Ben Sharp for the UFC segment of the show. Thank you, Archie. I'm joined for by, for Fleming's fighters by, of course, our resident boxing expert and UFC expert, Ben Fleming. Ben, let's first talk about the main story this week, Khabib versus Gachi. Khabib showed why he's one of the best pound-for-pound pound MMA fighters of all time, beating Gaethje in a dominating two-round performance. Give us a brief recap of the fight for all our listeners who did not watch the fight. Yeah, it was. Uh, <clears throat> we came in with a lot of, uh, a lot of questions as to how this um, panned out would would Gaethje be able to keep his distance? Would he be able to, to nullify the takedowns of um, Khabib? Would he be able to get some of his power shots off? And uh, we got we got a lot of those uh, a lot of those questions and answers for us in a pretty dominant performance by by by, by Khabib. Actually, um, two of the judges, two of the three judges, gave Gaethje the first round, which um, came as a bit of a surprise. Um, but yeah, story of the fight. 
Khabib just with his unrelenting pressure. Gaethje was just panicked. His his his, his game wasn't as precise, as clean cut as we saw against Tony Ferguson. He did get those leg kicks off. Um, Khabib got him down towards the end of the first round after after after, after a few failed attempts. Um, fortunately, that was just before the end of the round, so Gaethje could get out. Second round started in in, uh, in much the same way. And the, the problem for Gaethje was um, he could stop many takedowns, but Khabib eventually got it. Gaethje didn't sh- show that urgency to get back up, to try and force the issue. And um, what, 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 was, what was found out is that Gaethje is a huge um, weakness in his game when it, when it, when it comes to uh, the, fight, the fight staying on the mat for a long time. Khabib was able to, to progress to, uh, to mount in there and lock in. I think it was uh, yeah, a triangle choke and yeah, choke, choke Gaethje out unconscious. I mean, an incredible performance. We thought this was going to be perhaps his toughest fight stylistically. And uh, yeah, he just blew Justin Gaethje out of the water. It's quite interesting. You said that uh, Gaethje struggled uh, to stay on the to stay on the stay on the uh, the uh, standing in the sense that he was an All American wrestling champion. Were you surprised mm-hmm. by this? Yeah, I mean, we knew we knew he had that um, that pedigree coming in, and we saw that. I mean, Khabib Khabib didn't get a takedown until the very end of the first round, and uh, you know, there's not there's not there's not many guys that have managed to keep 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 the fight standing up for five minutes. He stopped a lot of takedowns. With a guy, with a guy like Khabib and 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 his pressure and 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 the way he just constantly pursues the takedown, it was always going to be um, a case of when, not if. Khabib was going to get the fight down. The question was, did did Gaethje have that explosiveness, as you say, that wrestling background, to get himself out of the takedown? And what we found is that, in fact, for the for the for the finishing sequence, um, Khabib Khabib got got that takedown. Um, Gaethje sprawled. And Khabib went under the sprawl, which has basically never been done before. Um, took him down again and got the got got the choke in. So it was it was not really surprising that the fight up on the ground because it always was. What what was a shame is that Gaethje didn't have the uh, the skills to get it up quickly enough before Khabib could implement his uh, his ground game. Speaking of Khabib, do you think he's the best pound for pound fighter in MMA after the fight? John Jones questioned this statement and staked his own claim to be the pound for pound king. Who's your pound for pound king? Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of John Jones. Um, prior to this, I think he's 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 had lots of controversies outside the sport. Um, he's been banned twice for doping. You know, he'll 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 allege that those those weren't um, those sort of you know tainted supplements and all that. But I had him as my pound for pound number one coming into this fight. Um, already, I think with this with this performance, you're not only looking at a current pound for pound um, number one, even if he has you know retired. Um, but but you're looking at Top two, top three, pound for pound of all time. Now you're looking at him in the likes of, uh, you know, up there with GSP, with Anderson Silva, with uh, with John Jones. You know, he's he, he's uh, he's sort of certified himself now as not only the best that's currently doing it, but uh, one of the best of all time. One of the beautiful things about Khabib <clears> is that he had all his fights before the Gachi one with his father who trained him. His father sadly passed away in July. Surely his father will be looking down on him with pride. Khabib was visibly moved after the fight. How big a performance do you think this was for him, considering he was without his father and who who's his trainer? Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's an interesting one. He's not actually had him in um in a lot of his fights in the UFC. Actually, there in the corner, um, Abdumanov and uh, Magomedov, his 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 father's had uh, visa issues, so he's not been able to to corner him. In fact, the first time um, Abdumanov was able to corner was when. 
uh, Khabib fought his previous fight, which was in Abu Dhabi against Dustin Poirier. Uh, he was able to get himself there and um, and corner them. But yeah, like a cracking win for him. Like as, as you said, you could see how emotional he was. Um, and yeah, he, he he's clearly such such an influence on his uh, on his life that uh, yeah, it's 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 really sad and clearly led to him taking the decision to uh, to call it a day. You mentioned that he called it a day. He's announced his retirement after going 29-0 in mixed martial arts and beating everyone in his way to become the undisputed lightweight champion. What do you think his legacy will be? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, as you said, yeah, 29-0, he's, he's lost two rounds in his MMA career. Not even, you know, guys will lose two fights. This guy's lost two rounds out of every single fight he's ever had. He's dominated everyone. As I said, he's he's pound for pound. He's no worse than the third best of all time to ever do it. And at a at a time when um, you're seeing this evolution in UFC and MMA, where fighters are becoming more well rounded, you know, wrestlers are getting better with their stand up. Stand up is getting better with wrestlers. It's just so so freakish to have a guy who is just so focused on one element of MMA, but he's just so good at it that regardless of any skills anyone has ever had, they just they just can't do anything. Like no one's no one's ever cut Khabib no one's ever knocked him down no one's ever knocked him out no one's ever really we never really seen Khabib hurt I mean even even someone like GSP lost twice John Jones has lost and had close decisions yeah, this is a guy that has dominated every fight he's been in and, and no one's no one's even got close to laying a glove on him it's uh, it's, it's remarkable I mean it is absolutely remarkable his retirement opens up the lightweight division now with Gatchi, McGregor, Poirier, Ferguson and Chandler, the three-time Bellator lightweight champion who was recently signed to UFC. Uh, now, the, Are they now the main contenders for the lightweight crown? And who do you think will conquer the division now? Yeah, it's a, uh, obviously a shame for um, that, that Khabib was retired if, if, if in fact that, that does stay the case. I mean, there's plenty of other guys. I'd like to see them fight. I'd, I'd like to see them fight Alex Oliveira. He's an up-and-coming lightweight. I'd love to have seen um, Ferguson get the fight. I mean, that fight that was booked five times and was cancelled all all five times, the last being due to coronavirus. Um, but yeah, I mean, it opens up a fantastic um, sort of four-way, eight-way tournament, however they want to do it. Um, <clears throat> McGregor and Poirier have already got themselves um, what seems to be a fight booked early in, in January. So what I would imagine... Uh, we will see is Poirier and McGregor fight early in January. Um, and then the winner will fight Justin Gaethje for the belt. Michael Chandler, I think he's good. I think he presents problems. But coming into a, coming into a division like the lightweight division, which is just stacked from, from, from head to toe, it, he's going to have to prove himself against, against a guy in the top 10 before he can realistically make a claim for, uh, for the title. Moving on to the other main fight of the evening, Robert Whittaker beat Jared Kanier in the middleweight division by an unanimous decision. Does this now set up a fight with champion Israel Adesanya? Yeah, this is a this is a cracking performance for for Whittaker. Obviously, lost the belt um, to Adesanya um, only only a year ago, um, October twenty nineteen. Got absolutely um, destroyed in that fight, and 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 sort of has really really had a, a career resurgence in this last year. He uh, he noted that he sort of got the work-life balance completely wrong. He, he stepped away for a bit, took some time out from his, uh, with, it, with his family, and he's, and he's come back in these last couple of months with a unanimous decision win against um, Darren Till and, and, and Jared Kananir. He's back to his best. Um, the high kicks were there. The jab was there. The fleetness of foot was there. Um, 
I don't know whether he'll get a fight with Adesanya straight away. Um, he certainly wasn't like overly pushing for it in the press conference. He said, you know, whatever will be, will be, you know, line them up, I'll knock them down type thing. Um, I, I think that's the fight to make next. I think this version of Whitaker is so much better than the version that lost the title to Adesanya a year ago, but it, it sort of depends on what Adesanya wants to do, whether he wants to, to chase a mega fight with John Jones or, or whether or whether he's happy to fight uh, Whitaker for another time. Let's now move on to boxing. AJ's WBO mandatory Alec, Alexander Usyk fights Derek Delboy Chisora in a crucial fight for both men. Who do you think will win this one? Yeah, I mean, this this fight feels like it's been uh, in the in in the reckoning for months, and obviously it's been being pushed back so many times due to uh, due to due to the current um, COVID situation. Finally, looks like they're going to get it on this weekend. Um, Usyk's a weird one because he's still he's still up there and in the pound for pound rankings, he's probably fourth or five. I haven't, I haven't checked it recently, um, but that is all. Uh, exclusively for his for his run at cruiserweight you know he was he was 16 at cruiserweight undisputed champion he thinks he's moved up to heavyweight he's only fought once um he beat Chaz witherspoon who is you know n- nothing really in terms of you know the top 10 top 15 of of the uh, of the heavyweight division so Derek is always a step up um i do still think he'll get the job done um and and then and then perhaps push on to a mandatory position against against uh, Anthony Joshua, but I mean, for 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 Chisora, it's fantastic. I mean, he's he's reinvented himself so many times. I mean, he's had I think what seven losses now, nine even. Um, I mean, for 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 a guy in the heavyweight division to have nine losses and still be this this relevant, essentially only one win away from a uh, from a, from another world title shot is 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 fantastic. So great for him. Great to see him get a a, a big big payday. But I think uh, this one will be this one will be a bit too far, and I think he's will get the job done. It's interesting you think that Usyk will uh, get the job done. I personally think that Delboy will get the job done. We'll talk about this next week, but I think Delboy will spring a surprise. And I think that Usyk will struggle with his power punches. He hasn't really been tested with with anything of any pressure at heavyweight. So let's just see what happens against Delboy. it's, It's heavyweight boxing after all. It only takes one punch. Savannah Marshall fights Hannah Ranking for the vacant WBO middleweight world championship. Marshall is the only person to beat Clarissa Shields amateur or professional in the amateur ranks or professional ranks and surely comes into this as favourite. Do you think the winner of this fight will set up a mega fight with Shields to, for the undisputed middleweight championship of the world? Yeah, I mean, I think this 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 fight is um, largely a, uh, a formality for Savannah Marshall. And, and unfortunately, there's really not a, a wealth of talent at... Um, um, at middleweight in the in the women's boxing scene, I mean, you mentioned Savannah Marshall and Clarissa Shields, and that's essentially it. Um, you know, Hannah Ranking is nine and four coming into this. Savannah Marshall eight and zero. I I, I expected to get this done relatively com- um, comfortably. And then, as you say, it's it's just a case of can uh, can terms be agreed between Marshall and Car- Clarissa Shields because that is, I mean, that is the fight to make in 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 the women's middleweight division. Lee Selby faces George Cambosis Jr. in a final world title eliminator for the IBF lightweight title, the winner of which will face Lopez, who beat Lomachenko last weekend. <clears throat> Is this Selby's last chance at a second world title? I mean, he's been there and done it before uh, fe- at featherweight, but is he going to featherweight? Sorry, is he going to really struggle uh, against uh, Cambosis? Um, it's an interesting one. He, he, he has sort of gone under the radar. Yeah, I mean, he 
he obviously had the had had the featherweight belt for for a couple of years, lost it to Josh Warrington in a in a close fight, um, and then and then moved up two divisions, so skipped out super featherweight, went straight to lightweight, and as you said, sort he sort of just gone under the radar, um, going about his wins. He got a win against Omar Douglas, a good win against Rick, Ricky Burns, that now comes into this against Cambosis Junior. Um, it's a it's a, it's 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 a tough one. I can't say I've seen a lot of Cambosis Junior, but I would imagine he will get the job done, Lee Selby. And then um, yeah, I mean, if he manages to get that, puts himself in a mandatory position against Tiafimo Lopez. I I don't particularly like his chances in that fight, but it'd be it'd be great great for him to get one last one last chance at uh, at winning the belt at uh, at lightweight. Lastly, Floyd Mayweather is in talks to fight Logan Paul. What is the point of this fight other than money for both men, considering Logan Paul lost a fellow YouTuber KSI only last year? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any um, thrilling analysis on on Logan Paul's uh, boxing style. Um, I, th- I think if you're losing losing to uh, to a guy who's about four inches smaller than him, but what I think KSI was, I, I, I can't say I even watch that fight. But I mean, from a from a purely um, weight point of view, Logan Paul is about six foot two in a cruiserweight, and Floyd Mayweather his, his last fight was at was at welterweight. So you're looking at four, five, six divisions between them. So, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see how even in, in that sense the fight could even get sanctioned. I don't, I don't know what boxing commission is going to allow Floyd uh, Logan Paul to step in the ring against Mayweather. But if it does happen, then fair play to Logan Paul because he's just got himself a big payday. In. And uh, well, hopefully he doesn't sustain any damage because I imagine Mayweather would just have his way with him. Thank you, Ben. And this has been Fleming's Fighters. We now move on to uh, Tanner's Tackles. Uh, and we, of course, this is with Harry Tanner, our resident NFL expert. Now, Harry, let's first get to the big game of the week. Two sides, 5-0. and oh. The Titans faced off against the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Titans lost. What would you attribute this loss down to? Well, yeah, sure. We spoke about both these teams quite a lot last week. We bigged them up. They remained undefeated until this point. But, uh, you know, the Titan, Titans juggernaut, I think it becomes sort of, you know, offensively led by Derek Henry and Ryan Tannehill, just came up against the Steelers' defence and that really caused them some problems. I don't think they faced a team who were quite as strong defensively as, um, you know, until this point. And, uh, you know, the, the, the rush defence was fantastic for uh, Pittsburgh. Derek Henry, who normally has his way with most teams he faces, uh, was just limited to 3.8 yards per carry. You know, last week it was up at 10, it was up at 10 yards per carry, which is absolutely ridiculous. But uh, I think the main thing for the Steelers was, uh, you know, they, they limited that big play factor that, that Henry could provide. Last week we watched his fantastic 90-yard touchdown. This week his highest, uh, his highest play was just 17 yards. So, um, you know, from Pittsburgh's point of view, they really stifled uh, the Titans' offense and, uh, you know, they really struggled to move the football, really. Big Ben Roethlisberger threw for 268 yards against the Titans. Is he experiencing some swan song form in his twilight years as, as an elite quarterback? Well, I would have said that. I thought uh, you know, last night, I don't think he was at best. He threw three interceptions. But uh, if we're looking at that you know, as a pure anomaly, he has been absolutely fantastic this season. He, uh, you know, Some people are saying it's a real career year for him. Until this point, he's had uh, his highest completion percentage, his highest pass rating, his best uh, touchdown to interception ratio. You know, in the first uh, five weeks of the season, um, absolutely. You know, for someone who's just come back from injury as well, he had a serious elbow surgery. He's throwing the ball with great zip, great pace, highly accurate. Um, you know, it's some, it's somewhat surprising, really, for a man who's in his, I think it's his sixteenth or seventeenth year in the NFL. 
we spoke about running back Derek Henry last week and we said he struggled this week, comparatively only rushing for 75 yards. What was the reasoning for his struggle this week? Was it the Steelers' defence or was it a poor performance on his behalf? I think it was probably a combination of the two. Um, you know, last week, I think he was, you know, his his, uh, his stats certainly looked very good because the Houston Texans do have pretty a pretty dreadful run defence. So the Steelers in comparison, you know, right up there at the top of the league. I also think, you know, the game script didn't really benefit him very much. I think, uh, you know, the, the Steelers raced into a lead uh, quite early on in the, uh, in the, I think they scored 17 points in the second quarter, you know, they had a big lead. And I think that, that tends to mean that teams will throw the football a lot more. Whereas the Titans, you know, when they've been in closer games, when they've been leading, it allows them to give the ball to Derek Henry more than uh, in a game like this, where they're really sort of, you know, they're, they're chasing after, uh, you know, the points that they need to catch up. So I think that probably led to Ryan Tannehill throwing a bit more. And the play calling was probably slightly different from what they had anticipated and planned in the first place. Last point about the Titans-Steelers game. The Titans' defence struggled again. They have conceded 153 points, which is only tied 12th best in the league. They want to be Super Bowl contenders in a packed AFC conference. Do they need to improve their defence or can they rely on their offence? I think that's an interesting point. Well, Sharpie, you know, being a linebacker yourself, you'll know the offence wins games, but uh, the defence wins championships. And I really do think that... Uh, you know, the Titans probably start to, you know, will need to get their act together. What's really disappointed me, well, certainly in that game last night, was uh, their lack of pass rush. They didn't get a sack all game. And for a team that, you know, spent quite a bit of money on uh, Jadavian Clowney, I think they've really got to get a bit more, um, get, get, get out the quarterback a little bit more. I think uh, if you look at the games they have played this season, they've actually, you know, they've played the Jaguars, the Texans, the Broncos and the Vikings. These are all teams with a losing record at the moment. Um, and, and, you know, their wins have only been by one possession. And often quite a lot of these have just been, you know, within a field goal. So, you know, when they start to face, you know, the AFC's, uh, the AFC's best, I think they might, you know, be in for a rude awakening really defensively. They, when they start to face, you know, you know, they may have defeated Patrick Mahomes last time in the playoffs, but uh, if they if they face him again, I think if they're not getting at him and they give him time, uh, time to throw the football, I think he'll absolutely decimate them. We now move on to the Arizona Cardinals versus the Seattle Seahawks, which went into overtime thanks to a Zane Gonzalez field goal and then was won thanks to a Gonzalez field goal. How crucial is a good kicker to have to an NFL team? I think absolutely vital. Um, I think it's quite difficult to get across to uh, to, to people who, who aren't that familiar with the NFL just how uh, in, you know, incredibly unusual the position of kicker is. You could... Uh, you know, as a kicker, you could be sitting on the sidelines in a freezing cold all game and have very precious little to do. And then with three seconds left, you know, your number will be called and you've, you've, you've got all the pressure on the world, in, in the world on you and you've got to kick a 50-yard field goal to win the game. Um, absolutely, you know, having a good kicker, I think, gives offences a, uh, a lot more confidence. If you're the quarterback and you're leading a late drive, you know, you've just got to make it to the 30-yard line. And, uh, you know, you, you might have Zane Gonzalez on your bench to kick it over between the posts and you win the game. You know, and conversely, if you do have a kicker who's a bit shaky, short on confidence, it, it demands a lot more from uh, from the offence on the field to drive into the end zone. You're adding an extra 30 yards, uh, perhaps, uh, to get in there. Um, you know, it's an extremely difficult position being kicker. It's a very volatile uh, industry amongst the kickers. There's very little sympathy when it goes wrong. Um, you know, maybe may one week you'll have all the plaudits, but if you miss two crucial field goals, uh, you might be looking at uh, your P45 quite quickly because I think teams will move you on if you're not quite cutting it. Both Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson threw for over 350 yards. What makes them so good as quarterbacks, despite lacking the height most people want from an elite quarterback? Russell Wilson's five foot eleven. Uh, Kyler Murray's six foot. Most people want quarterbacks to are at least six foot two. Yeah, no, these two and other quarterbacks now they really are breaking the mold. Traditionally, you know, I think people would 
imagine they're John Elways, they're uh, Peyton Mannings, you know, these quite tall, maybe six foot four, big arms, can throw the ball miles. But uh, certainly these days, there's been a slight trend in, uh, in quarterbacks who are slightly smaller, but definitely more nimble. Um, interestingly, if you look at both Murray and, uh, and Russell Watson, they've got a baseball background. I wonder if that contributes so, so somewhat to, uh, you know, to their talent and their, uh, you know, their success in the NFL. Kyler Murray, if I'm sure if you remember Sharp, he was drafted in the Major League Baseball draft first round, which is absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, number nine. I think, you know, they're... Exactly. I mean, it's, it's amazing to have that that skill in, in two sports, but I definitely think that multi-sport background has given, you know, Russell Wilson, talented player as well, has given both of them an extra dimension to their game. They're fantastic, you know, running outside the pocket, you know, throwing uh, throwing big big balls downfield, but also I think, you know, their running potential also gives defences something else to think about. Um, certainly if, you know, if a quarterback can run and scramble for a first down and then slide, which is something they've probably developed from their baseball and, uh, and avoid getting hit, is a, you know, a really crucial part of the games and uh, can really add something more dynamic to uh, offences in the NFL these days. Even though the Seahawks lost, do we still see them as the best team in the NFC? Are they the top dog? Um, I wouldn't say they were the top dog. I think the NFC is certainly a, a very difficult uh, division and a conference to uh, to pick this year. Definitely all of the teams have shown some faults. And now after that defeat for the Seahawks, you know there are no undefeated teams left. Um, in the division, you know, the Seahawks, and we've spoken about them extensively before, you know, Russell Wilson has been fantastic and offensively they're scoring a lot of points, but, you know, there may be a similar problem with the Titans, as I've mentioned, you know, defense, you know, lots and lots of teams over the years, if you look at the Patriots and their dominance over the last 20 years, the Seahawks have, you know, have, uh, you know, sort of eight years ago, these teams were built fundamentally on very strong, aggressive defenses. Um, so in that regard, you know, the Seahawks, we said, don't really have that and don't really offer that at the moment. So, uh, you know, as good as their offense has been, I wouldn't say they were, you know, the undisputed top dog. But then, you know, the Packers, we talked about how good they were. And then they got bullied by the Buccaneers not too long ago. The 49ers last year's, you know, uh, NFC Super Bowl representatives have been banged up, had a lot of injuries, but seem to be showing a bit more form lately. Um, it's a very, very tough division to call at the moment. Um, but, you know, it makes it all the more interesting. Moving on to the Patriots, they lost to the San Francisco 49ers to go two and four. Cam Newton struggled again and was benched in the fourth quarter for Jarrett Stidham. Do we see Newton starting next week's game against the Buffalo Bills or will, or will he be dropped? Yeah, it's an interesting situation in New England at the moment. Um, you know, Cam Newton looked like he was having a real sort of career renaissance at the start of the year. You know, he looked excellent. Uh, he, was, you know, he was throwing the ball well, running the ball exceptionally as well. Um, but, you know, the last two games have just been absolutely dreadful. He's come back from the, you know, his, his COVID break um, and, you know, he's, I think he's thrown five interceptions in his last two games, no touchdowns. Um, and then combined, I think it's something like 250 yards combined over the last two games. So he has been absolutely dreadful. You know, the question of whether he'll be dropped and whether Jarrett Stidham will be given a go, you know, perhaps leads towards, uh, you know, the debate about whether New England are going to be tanking this season. You know, Bill Belichick is always a man with a plan and someone who's always thinking, two or three steps ahead of everyone else. And maybe, you know, I think they're two and four now, the Patriots. He might be looking at a tasty draft pick um, and picking up, you know, some of the quarterback talent that is an, off is an offer in the draft. We, we spoke about Trevor Lawrence last, last week and, uh, you know, they probably won't be looking that high, but, you know, Justin Fields is a real talent at Ohio, Trey Lance. There are, you know, lots and lots of potential options that uh, maybe if New, if New England are thinking of tanking, they might be going after in uh, the offseason. The Cowboys lost to Washington and suffered yet more injuries in the quarterback position with Andy Dalton going off injured. Is their season just done and dusted? Is it over? Well, I'd, I'd like to say 
you know, it probably is. And I think I said that last week, but the, you know, the quality of football in the NFC East this year has just been so dreadful that I don't think you can rule anyone out from, uh, from winning that division. I think all four teams, so the Eagles, the Giants, the, um, the, the Washington football team, you know, and, uh, and the Cowboys, I think all four of them have a, a negative points differential. So in, in that they've conceded more points than they've scored. Um, all of them have not really shown any signs of particularly uh, dominating that division. I mean, I, I think the Cowboys, you know, now on their third string quarterback, a guy I'd never heard of, looks like he's going to be starting next game. They, I'd like to say they have no chance, but like you never know. I think it will just be uh, maybe they'll scrape through, get a couple of wins, uh, and maybe that will be enough in this very sort of odd division. Ezekiel Elliott is struggling at the moment. He leads all running backs with five fumbles, has a, has a joint most fourth joined most four drops of running backs and has allowed more quarterback hits than any other running back with seven. Have the Cowboys, in giving him a new contract, spent money on the wrong man with Dak Prescott's contract running out at the end of the season? Yeah, there's an interesting debate, an interesting narrative these days in the NFL about uh, you know whether running backs should be paid. I think there's a real split in the league as uh, you know some some coaches and organisations see them as a very sort of dispensable commodity where anyone if you've got a good offensive line and a good quarterback you know any any running back can do the job really so if you look at a team like San Francisco who are a fantastic uh, rushing offense you know there's just a real combination of lots of guys Raheem Mostert, Jarrett McKinnon, Ben Coleman, Jeff Wilson all these guys you know it's very much sort of a production line and a, and a carousel as such whereas you know Dallas Cowboys have just given Ezekiel a very big contract perhaps you know his form this season has not been great and it may be something that they live to regret they also paid uh, Amari Cooper, I think, uh, a handsome sum last season. So the question of whether they'll have enough money for Dak is, you know, it's certainly an interesting one. I think Ezekiel, you know, on his day and when he holds on to the football and doesn't drop it, is one of undoubtedly one of the best running backs in the league. But uh, whether he's actually worth that much money and whether his backup, say Tony Pollard, could do a very similar job for, uh, you know, substantially smaller amounts of money is certainly, uh, you know, certainly up for debate. Lastly, let's talk about the Falcons running back Todd Gurley. He accidentally scored a touchdown when he should have fallen down before the end zone to let his team run the clock down. Does this moment just epitomise the Falcons' season? Uh, I think it, it probably does, Sharpie. I'm sure that was an agonising, excruciating watch for you as a it Falcons was. fan. It really was a, a rather odd situation. I suppose for those who don't really watch, uh, you know, who aren't that familiar with the NFL, the idea of accidentally scoring a touchdown is probably quite a foreign concept. I don't think you have many accidents or goals in football. Um, yeah, no. So the idea really was that uh, if had he just fallen over before the uh, before the touchdown, before the end zone, the, you know, the game, the clock would have run out. The Falcons would have kicked a field goal over and they would have won the game. But in falling over into the end zone, he uh, he gave uh, the Detroit Lions a, a whole minute to go and score. And you know, lo and behold, they went up there and with the last play of the game, they scored a touchdown to win the game. But uh, it was just yeah, it was it was a real sort of comedy of errors, really. I think you know the Atlanta Falcons really just looked like a team. You know, any you know, no lead is safe for them, really. Quite sadly, I think, you know, unless they're thirty points up with about thirty seconds to go, I don't think uh, they'll ever feel safe. So, uh, no, I think it's a shame, though. I think uh, you know the new coaches come in. You know, we saw a positive performance last week, and you know, by and large, last night was a pretty decent one. But uh, I think there, you know, there are reasons to be positive, and that was just a real sort of freak example of uh, how odd football can be at times. Thank you, Harry, and that was Tanner's tackles. Uh, I'm now joined by uh, Luke Powell to discuss F1. Before we get into the significance of Lewis Hamilton's wrecking breaking victory, Luke, can you give us a brief overview of the race for our listeners who did not, did not watch it? 
Yeah, so this was the Portimao GP in Portugal. So a brand new track that we've not seen in F1 before. And nobody really knew what to expect. I'll just go over um, Bottas. In the weekend leading up, he was the fastest through all of qualifying. He was the fastest in the first two um, qualifying sessions, all of practice. And then Lewis Hamilton in the final qualifying session puts himself on pole position. And it was Hamilton who ended up winning the GP with Bottas uh, slithering home into second place and Verstappen in third place. We've seen that three times this season, that podium. They're consistently on top. But it wasn't an easy race. And, and you actually saw on the opening lap Verstappen and Sergio Perez of Racing Point colliding. Perez span out and he found himself at the back of the grid. Spinning Perez out is the equivalent of, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a red flag in front of a bull, in front of a raging bull. And he set off for the rest of the race, trying to get as far up the grid as he could. And he did very impressively, despite having to pit more than everyone else. He pitted twice. Most people only pitted once. He ended up in seventh place which is a really good performance. And also I should highlight Kimi Raikkonen, who started 16th and then somehow snaked his way up to sixth place after the first lap. And you can actually see it on the F1 website. It is such a phenomenal run. It's just like everyone else's sitting ducks and he manages to overtake them. However, unfortunately, with about 10 laps to go, uh, Sebastian Vettel overtook Raikkonen to finish in the final points position so Raikkonen didn't bring home any points for Alfa Romeo. Um, but yeah, Hamilton extending his lead at the top of the championship could win it in the next couple of GPs. Hamilton won his 92nd Grand Prix, breaking Michael Schumacher's record of 91 race wins. This record seemed unbreakable. Explain why you think Hamilton has broken this record. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question. If you ask Hamilton himself, he'll just say, it's the rest of the team. It's everybody around me. And it is. Mercedes are, they, they push so hard to improve that they, they'll take every millisecond they can and stay up till crazy hours of the evening to get it year on year. They want to improve. But I think also you would put it down to having really good teammate Nico Rosberg um, a few years ago. Uh, Bottas is still very good, but I think Rosberg was of a different pedigree who really helped with the research and development to help push Mercedes along. He also uh, nicked a title off Hamilton one year. So you see that Hamilton has been pushed all the way. But let's not just talk about everyone else. His own motivation is outstanding and he holds himself to the highest standards. You know, he, he is a driver who will complain about the tiniest things mid-race and beyond to his engineers. We saw it this weekend. He was saying, oh, there's a problem with the tyres. And, and on the screen, on the graphics, they said that his, his front tyres were at 10% efficiency and yet somehow he just picks up his speed and goes even quicker he's somebody who manages to edge out an advantage where there shouldn't be an advantage and yeah he's got a really unique ability Hamilton has yet to sign a contract beyond 2021 we expect him to sign but if he were to leave F1 at the end of the 2021 season we've expected at least seven world titles what would his legacy be absolutely outstanding arguably the greatest of all time and i mean you know f1 has a, a long and varied history and it's hard to compare across eras but he, by the time he retires he could have most points most race wins most world titles it's phenomenal and i think something that he brings as well is being you know a, a philanthropist get my words right a philanthropist and beyond the sport and really being a role model for people we've seen he's had to go through so much but he has been 
the bastion against racism. He's the only ever black driver in the sport. And um, I mean, people probably see F1 from outside and think they're all privileged, but he has had so many hardships. I mean, early on in his F1 career, I don't know if listeners remember, there was a website set up for people just to post abusive comments about him. When you step into an F1 car, you have to be 100% concentrated. You have to somehow block all of that out. And he's managed to do that. And he, he stood up to those, those people, those detractors, those haters, those racists incredibly well. So he is an inspiration in the way that Michael Schumacher really you know, made F1 popular in Germany. It wasn't really popular before him. Lewis Hamilton can hopefully inspire a generation um, of minorities and help them get into the sport, show them that it can be done. Yeah, but absolutely outstanding man as well. I don't think people realise enough if you listen to him, just what a kind person he comes across as as well. Is Hamilton the GOAT of F1, the greatest of all time? I'd be tempted to say, would you? Yeah, I would. Statistics say is, um, I think he's, he's, he's pace across one lap is great. He won in cars where he, where he wasn't necessarily the best, as for example, at McLaren Mercedes, where it was that team and then McLaren. Um, I think he's the greatest of all time. Yeah. I mean, there's shouts for um, Nicky Lauda, say, his comeback after getting horrific burns um, in one GP in the 70s. And then he was back six weeks later in the car. And that's phenomenal. Um, Sterling Moss, Fangio, they've all contributed so much each era has had one or two key drivers. But, I mean, Hamilton's just been so dominant since he's joined Mercedes that it's hard to see past him. And if he breaks all the records, then he'd probably feel quite hard done by if he wasn't voted as the greatest. Speaking of other drivers, Charles Leclerc put in a brilliant performance to come forth with a severely underpowered Ferrari engine this season. Do you think if Hamilton retires in the next two, three years, we, we could see an epic duel between him and Verstappen? Probably, yeah. Him and Verstappen are definitely the, the two main talents. I think for, it'll be interesting to see if your future does lie with Ferrari. Of course, he was part of their driver academy. He's the next big thing for Ferrari, supposed to be leading them into their glorious future. But Ferrari will have to sort their issues out because this season, I mean, we've seen with Sebastian Vettel, who is a phenomenal driver. He's really struggled. He's been having to settle for one or two points in a lot of the races or even nothing each week so I think it's a matter of Ferrari really sorting their engine issues out but if you're looking at who are the most talented drivers on the grid beyond Hamilton yeah Leclerc and Verstappen if George Russell can stay in F1 I think he is seen as the very long-term replacement for Mercedes he is some I mean he's only 30 odd races into his career at the moment he's never scored a point so it's hard to judge can he deliver top quality performances in the car. He's really good on a Saturday. Sometimes on a Sunday, he's a bit unreliable. But long term, I think, yeah, um, Russell could probably rank with them as well. Speaking of George Russell, um, there's rumours that he's going to leave Williams at the end of this year on the basis that they want a pay, pay and drive or a pay driver. Explain to people what a pay driver is and explain why, why Russell may be leaving. Yeah, so it, it's something that a lot of people don't know about that. Despite all the money these F1 teams have, they want their drivers in a lot of cases to bring financial backing. 
and we're talking about guys who will have billionaire granddads or something, people who can really bring a lot of money. I mean, Lance Stroll, for instance, his dad is the chairman of the Racing Point team. So unfortunately, there can be a lot of favouritism. And it just so happens that Russell's teammate at Williams, uh, Latifi, who Russell outperforms every week, is a pay driver. Now, you still have to be a really good driver in F1. You can't just pay a bit of money and get a drive if you're anyone. You know, you're not going to get a Lionel Messi spending his career earnings for a chance to drive in an F1 car for a year. But um, yeah, it really helps. And they are looking at those options, uh, Haas as well, for next season. At the bottom of the grid, how are they going to increase their budgets? They're looking around in F2. They're seeing drivers who have a lot of financial backing and thinking, for us, does it matter if we're not going to score points anyway? Does it matter if we have Russell who will finish 14th or somebody who's going to finish 17th in the race if they bring us a few extra million and improve our future prospects with the car? You mentioned Haas. Magnussen and Grosjean, their two drivers, announced they were leaving the team at the end of the season. Who is likely to replace them? Yeah, so as I mentioned, F2 is probably the place they're going to be looking. There's a bit of a debate, and I don't know what your view on this is, but they can either go for... Two experienced drivers, they probably won't. One experienced and one young driver, or they could go for two inexperienced drivers straight from F2. And the most likely are going to be Mick Schumacher and probably either Callum Eilat or Nikita Mazepin. Um, Schumacher, of course, is Michael Schumacher's son. And Eilat as well is part of the uh, Ferrari Driver Academy, who Haas are linked with. They use a Ferrari engine. So those two are probably thinking we want a seat in that team. And Haas are probably thinking if we're going to develop our relationship with Ferrari, we're going to want to bring those drivers in. They've proven their talents at a lower level. They'll probably do a good job. The only problem is you've also got the likes of Sergio Perez, who hasn't got a seat for next season, Nico Hulkenberg, two really solid midfield drivers who could arguably be driving for one of the very top teams. Do you want to bring them in if you're Haas? I mean, they, they, they've confirmed that next season is probably going to be a write-off. They're not going to be competing in the midfield, more than likely. So maybe it doesn't make sense to bring in a, a really good, uh, experienced driver if he's not going to do much for you anyway. I mean, what, what's your view or not? What do you think they should I do? I mean, I personally think that you need one experienced driver and one inexperienced driver on the basis that you need somebody who's reliable and can get the job done, even if it is just finishing 11th or 12th. But you need that young drive because you could potentially unearth a great talent. You look, you, look, you remember uh, 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 Saab, not Saab, um, Alfa Romeo. Um, they brought in Charles Leclerc and he picked up points for them, even in that car. Yeah. So I think you go with one experience and one inexperience on the basis that you need the experience, but you could unearth the talent with the inexperienced guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Um just for developing the car as well, having somebody who's been in F1 for a decade like Perez would be a huge asset. Um, arguably, if the Red Bull seat of Alex Albon is open, he might be hanging round for that though. So I think it would be difficult to tempt him in. Finally, one last note on Hamilton. He's one, one of my sporting heroes for what he does on and off the track. Why do you think he's not appreciated by the British public as much as, say, Andy Murray, despite dominating his sport? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I wonder if 
with tennis, you see the sweat. And I know it sounds really strange, but F1 is quite a distanced sport. You don't, you just see a guy in a helmet uh, flying past it 200 miles an hour. You get a lot more out on the television screen, or you could be a few meters away from a tennis player in the stands at Wimbledon. So I, I think, I mean, with Andy Murray as well, you have the backstory, the absolute tragedy that he's been through, you know, the Dunblane school massacre. I happened to see that must have been awful. So there's, you know, a lot of sympathy and he's such a lovely guy. You know, he's played tennis alongside his brother. That's a beautiful thing to see. And I think as well with tennis, probably Andy Murray has been the one star for us in this generation. Mostly we've had a lot of people lingering around the second or third round. Whereas in F1, you do get the likes of Jensen Button, who's still somebody people can look up to. So maybe the loyalties are divided. But it's a really strange one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I love F1. It's such an exciting sport. And Hamilton is such a good role model that it is strange why he doesn't get more plaudits and more fanfare from the British public. Thank you, Luke. That was our F1 segment. We are now going to move on to cycling. And I'm joined again by Harry Tanner to discuss Theo Gagan-Hart's win at the Giro. Gagan-Hart won the Giro in a shock win for the Ineos rider. What were the key moments for the cyclist? Well, I think the, the first place you have to start at is, uh, is probably stage three with Geraint Thomas's injury. You know, Theo Gagan-Hart, let's not forget, was, uh, was what was dubbed a sort of water carrier, really. He was, he was meant to be putting in all the hard yards with very little credit and very little glory just to, uh, to get Geraint Thomas up and over the mountains and uh, over the finish line in first place. But... Uh, you know, a nasty crash where I think uh, I think it was a water bottle got wedged in Grant Thomas's uh, front wheel, led to him uh, you know shattering his pelvis, and uh, you know it put it put Theo Gagenhart in uh, in pole position to lead to lead Team Ineos. Um and then of course I think uh, apart from that, his, you know his probably his first stage win, um, stage fifteen. You know I, I think being put into that kind of position, thrust into the spotlight, must have been very difficult. But to to prove yourself uh, by winning a you know a Grand Tour stage at stage 15 must have given him a huge amount of confidence, you know, given him a sense of belonging that you know he really was deserving of the spot, and uh, and I think fueled his uh, his his next week and then the last week of the uh, of the of the, uh, of the tour to uh, to power ahead and uh, to to victory. His family are not from a cycling background, unlike other riders like Bradley Wiggins. Explain his int- entrance into cycling and Team Ineos. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm uh, celebrity name dropping here, but I, I, as a personal connection, my, a builder at, uh, that I know is uh, is, is uh, Theo Gagenhart's father. So, as you can tell, like Bradley Wiggins, who's uh, his father was a professional cyclist, there's not such a pedigree and heritage in uh, Theo Gagenhart's family. He you know, he's come up from you know the real grassroots level, joined his local cycling club, club Hackney Cycles, um, and he's described as just a true fan of the sport by uh, those that know him in the uh, in the industry. He is a uh, He's, he's, he's known now, uh, it's, uh, it's infamously for, uh, for the skiving off school to go and watch the, uh, the, the, the launch of Team Sky, uh, who you know, in 2009 were first formed. He, he, let, he, he bunked school, went to watch that because he was that excited for it. And uh, eight years later, after you know, putting in lots of hard graft and hard yards uh, on his bike, he, uh, he joined Team Sky, who later to become uh, Team Ineos. This rather saved the season for Ineos, having failed to win the Tour de France and they're struggling in the World Tour with Chris Froome. They now have four Grand Tour winners on their books for next season, plus Adam Yates, another Grand Tour contender. How are they going to approach next season's big races with so many top riders? Is it a bit, is it a bit of a case of 
putting your eggs in one basket or are they going to spread their rides across different races? Yeah, it's going to be very difficult. I think uh, putting all your eggs in one basket is probably not the best approach. I think it's, it's going to be difficult to manage uh, to manage egos really now that if they have four uh, four grand tour uh, winners, it's, it's going to be important. I think probably for them to target race by race by race. Um, you know, I think they, that's what they plan to do this year with Grant Thomas going uh, in the Giro and, uh, and they had Bernal in the uh, in the Tour de France. And I think they've got um, well, I can't Carapaz. I think it is in the uh, in the Vuelta at the moment. So I think that's probably the best way to, uh, to approach it for them. I think, you know, they're blessed with, you know, uh, a real set for, for incredibly impressive riders. And on top of that, as you said, uh, Adam Yates, who has certainly his potential to, uh, to go on and win something himself. So I think uh, managing egos will probably be the most difficult thing, making sure everyone feels valued within the team. You know, as we've seen with Chris Froome's departure, it's probably not always that, that easy and straightforward. I think him and uh, Bradley Wiggins, I think that was quite difficult for a team Sky back in the day to make sure both of them were satisfied. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but um, I don't think they'll be complaining about having so many impressive riders uh, amongst, amongst their ranks. Finally, what are your predictions for the rest of Gegenhardt's career? Uh, well, I think a, a good omen for him is I think he's, he's 25 and uh, that was about the age that Chris Froome won his first uh, First Grand Tour, he won the La Vuelta in uh, in 2011, I think. So uh, if Chris Froome's career is anything to go by, I think the sky's the limit for uh, for Theo Gegenhardt. Um, it'd be interesting to see now how he copes with uh, hopes with hopes with the pre- copes with the pressure of you know having having won a Grand Tour now. Um, you know, it's very different here. There was no expectation on him really in this race. It was just how well could he do for Ineos in a, in quite a tricky situation. Uh, you know, he really saved face for them uh, this season. So now, uh, you know, he'll have more of a target on his back. Other, other teams will know a bit more about him. Um, yeah, I'd be really interested to see uh, whether he keeps going. You see in lots of sports, like boxing perhaps in particular, you know, lots of uh, fighters, once they, once they get, to, get to the very top, once they've won the world title, that's what they've spent their whole career working for. You know, it's quite hard to summon the same motivation to defend that. So uh, I'm sure, you know, from what I've read about, uh, about Theo Gegenhart, I think he's, you know, he's a fierce competitor. And uh, he'll take it all in a stride. So I, I expect there could well be more victories uh, in the future for him. Thank you, Harry. We're now going to move on to our, our fav- my favourite segment of the week, Any Other Business. And I'm going to be joined by all our pundits this week. Um, my, the question I've asked all my, all my pundits this week is, Strictly Come Dancing is on and it's uh, started up again. Who would you like to be your, which sports person would you like to be your celebrity uh, dance coach? And I'm going to start with uh, Luke Power for this one. Oh, Ben, I want you as my partner. (laughs) American football player for Durham. Um, So I'm going to go with Peter Crouch for this one. Uh, You know, of course, a very elegant uh, gentleman, very long limbed. He'd be able to swing you around good and proper on the ballroom dance floor no messing around. And I think as well, if anyone's listened to his podcast, you realize just what a, a genuine funny guy he is. So when we're spending 20 hours a day training to win Strictly Come Dancing, I'm going to enjoy every moment of it with him. So I'm going for Peter Crouch. Robert, what would your choice be to be your sports person dance coach? So I'm going for somebody who I think has less of a sense of humor and that's Sean Edwards. Uh, France defensive coach because as a player playing scrum half for rugby league he was quite quick he had quite quick feet you know he's very good at moving around but also he's you know he's kind of obsessed with details and I reckon you're gonna do what he says because otherwise he'll probably drop you so 
Yeah, Tron Edwards. Harry, who's your choice? Now, I'm just going for this purely to win Strictly Come Dancing. I think I'm going to go for someone who's got charisma. He's got all the dance moves. I'm going for Cameroonian legend Roger Miller as, uh, as my... Uh, my coach, I think, uh, you know, as Shakira once said, the hips don't lie. He's, uh, you know, he's got all the skills, all the, uh, all the dance moves. I think he'd teach me uh, a few tricks and I'd, I'd be pretty confident in, uh, in going on to win uh, the Glitterball Trophy. Thank you, Harry. Uh, ben, who's your pick to be your dance coach? Well, I've, uh, I reckon, I'm, I'm, you know, you've, you've, got, you've got to have someone who's being lifted and someone doing the lifts. And I, and I reckon, you know, as much as I'm six foot, I've not, not exactly got the frame to be the one doing the lifting. So I'm going to have to be the one lifting. So I reckon I'm going to have to go with former world's strongest man, Eddie Hall. I mean, if he can lift 500 kg, he'll lift me no problem. You know, he, what, he, what he lacks in flexibility and sort of, you know, movement, I'm sure he can make up with, with just, you know, twirling me around about 55 times or something. You know, unusual, but I reckon, I reckon the judges will like it. Thank you, Ben. Now, last but definitely not least, Archie, who is your going to be your celebrity dance coach? Well, I was trying to think of, of um, sports people who've got quick feet. I was thinking maybe the likes of, of Lionel Messi, but the, the person I've opted for is Floyd Mayweather, just because he really made a career out of dancing around his opponents in the ring. And, and there would certainly never be a dull moment with him in training. Thank you, Archie. Now, I think you've all made brilliant choices and usual this week, but I'm going to have to go with Ben Flemings on the basis that I would love to see him be lifted constantly by Eddie Hall, and it would be quite hilarious to see them two dancing together. Um, I'm now going to pass over to Archie Hodgson to finish up the show. Thank you very much, Ben. And thank you to all of our, our pundits today, to Luke Power, Robert Morrissey, Harry Tanner and Ben Fleming. We hope that you will join us next week. Goodbye. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.